Hey, Dental Online Trainers, Dr. Dennis Hartley back here with you again. In our last cast, we got to spend some time with Dr. Alan Mead. We learned a lot about Alan's background, but most interestingly, as we head into part two of our conversation, we learned about the stresses of dental school and the common but unhealthy coping mechanism he sought for dealing with those stresses. Like many, he turned to alcohol. But how was it that Alan slid into opiate addiction? Well, listen in to part two of our conversation as Alan discusses the reasons for choosing opioids over alcohol and the intervention to send him on his course through his 20-year recovery. All right, well, kick back, relax, and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Alan Mead. Hello, Dental Online Trainers. Welcome back to Dental Online Training ShareCast. Dr. Dennis Hartley with you today with Dr. Alan Mead. This is part two of our conversation with Alan about all things in life, mostly in part one, we talked about dental school experience and growing up in Michigan and his work with podcasts, most notably the Alan Mead experience and dental hacks. And Alan, remind me the the most uh, most recent the very dental podcast, the very dental podcast, which yeah. I am a subscriber and listen to. Frequently. It's really funny because we basically took I took what we did and I just made it into separate shows. Like the roundtable has its own show. We call that group function. We have the interviews that are the very dental, and then I do a short, which is just me kind of riffing, which is kind of what I did on the Alan Mead experience on some level. I would also have guests in the Alan Mead experience too, but I I call it a network because I want to be able to add programs or you know ideas mm-hmm. as as they come to me, you know. So it's a network on some level. I try and put out two or three episodes a week. We have very clinical, which is, which is, um, that's Zach Miners and Kevin Fryer who do their own show. They do a nice job. They're great. They're mm-hmm. great. They, you know, they started out as listeners to the dental hacks and then, you know, they kind of, they, we, this community sort of popped up because of the podcasting stuff. And I, I knew immediately that like we had them on several times and I knew immediately they had chemistry. So it was a matter of, and so that they've been, and, and last year was the, the first year that the, I basically, I don't know, I'm such a, I'm so funny. I buy recording stuff. I can write it off, right? I can write it off as podcast stuff. So I buy, I have so much recording gear. So much, like, like you might think it's funny until you saw, I, I literally spend hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars on, on. So this year we had really cool booths. We, they had their own booth sitting right next to, so the very clinical booth was right next to the very dental booth. We had these, you know, literally four headset recorders on two separate tables and they literally recorded the whole meeting unbelievably so good i was in and out because i was helping run the meeting and stuff but it was it was great and and honestly it sounds really good they have incredible chemistry when they're in person is just it's just really good so yeah very clinical is if you haven't listened to i mean it's all in the same network so you're going to catch their shows if you're if you are are Subscribe to the Very Dental Podcast. The Very Dental. We're going to talk about scoring with addiction, but that just sort of made me feel very much like that was your score when you start buying this stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not any different at all. Yeah. It's just a whole different. Yeah. Now it's bicycles. Yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about that too. <laughs> so one of my favorite topics. Yeah. I, I want to read this to you. Uh, this is also from the Alan Mead experience. One of the uh, reviews says, uh, love it, exclamation point. Feels like I'm finally listening to a real dentist. There you go. No, I mean, we have a lot of real dentists on, so it's a, but I think what it is, is there's a certain, I don't claim to have this as a, there's a certain authenticity, I guess. Listen to me. Is it authentic to talk about how authentic you are? I don't know. It seems weird to me. <laughs> a little disingenuous, but we'll, <laughs> but, we'll, we'll, we'll ride it out. But I, but I think what people like is that we talk about like stuff, like they actually talk about the whole concept for all the podcasts was 
was what dentists talked about at lunch or after a CE event. They'd sit around a table and bitch about dentistry. That's pretty much the concept. And, and that's sort of how we've, that's, that's kind of what I tend to think of when we do the podcast. With the Sharecast, what I've tried to do is help people who may know the voice of Ellen Mead from listening to you understand sort of the motivations, sort of their experiences. So I think that's really important for both young dentists and for more experienced dentists. Like, hey, they went through the same shit I went through. Or, you know, it's interesting talking to so many different people, just the various backgrounds. And yeah, for me, it's just, I find it fascinating. I'm an N of one for my experience in dental school and dentistry. Yeah. And I had yeah. my colleagues, but talking to other people and different experiences, I, I think people get a lot of value. At least I do. And so in a very selfish content, I do this so that I can- that's, and it stories. is, it, 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 for me, it always was kind of creating something that I'd want to listen to. So that's sort of, I, I agree. I tend to think of like, I can get the sales pitch anytime I want. I don't need a right. podcast for that. <laughs> right. Like that's everywhere. So, yeah. And if I want to learn technique, I'll go to a meeting for right. technique. What right. I like is what was the motivation? What were the mm -hmm. struggles? And that sort of leads us into what we're going to talk about now, some of the struggles. And this one I can identify with on a, on a bit, but not to the, to the level that, that you're going to talk about. You're very open and candid about your experience with addiction. Yeah. And so once you tell your story, because I, I know a bit about it, but I... Well, so it's, it, what's interesting is that a lot of people in, in the recovering community that I know have a long history where they were, you know, they were into, they started smoking and drinking when they were in junior high and they had this long, I was, was me. I was the opposite. I, I was a teetotaler. I was a teetotaler just about till I turned 21. I can probably, I can probably count on one or two hands max, the number of times that I drank before I turned 21. Do you have an addictive personality though in high school and grammar school or the things that like, if you, if you saw something and you started getting into something, were you a hundred percent in? I, my friends, particularly my friends in college will tell you that I was really into gadgets. I was really into the, I, I always, I would have a thing that I would sort of, this is actually almost an autistic thing, actually. And I have a son who has autism. So it's a little bit, I can sort of see a little, little bit of this in me. And I, I don't downplay the condition of autism, but there is a certain, for me, there is a certain what I'm fascinated with a thing, I tend to, I tend to key into that. From what I can tell, that's, that's one of the diagnostic criteria for autism, but I tended to be like that too. So like, if I get something in my brain, I, I loved gadgets. I loved, I loved, oh, do you remember when the Palm Pilot came out? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So I was the only person I knew that had a Palm Pilot so because I palm had to have pilot a Palm Pilot. Listeners for Palm yeah. Pilot, you might have to Google it. <laughs> yeah. There'll be a whole Wikipedia page, I'm sure. And the, uh, the, the handheld computer. They call them PDAs. They're personal. I don't remember what it. Personal Data assistant. Yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. It was basically, and I had one in dental school. I used to, I had a, I had a Mac laptop. When I went into dental school, we bought it. Like literally I had to bring like a sheet from the bursar of the University of Minnesota to prove that I was a student because the students get the best deals on, sure. on computers. And so I had a, I had a PowerBook 160. It was the first, first real computer that I had. I had that when I was a freshman in dental school and I used to bring it, I used to bring it to class and take notes on it. Now this is like now people who are listening to this, like, yeah, of course, everyone brings a laptop to class. <laughs> Back in 1993, they did not. That was, that was, they really didn't have such a thing. And if you look at a, a PowerBook 160, it's a brick of a machine and it's, it was grayscale. It was grayscale. It was, it was essentially a black and white laptop. Right. And it had zero, the battery was a joke. So I had to bring a big, big brick to plug it, but I, I did. And I actually had multiple power books over the years. So I was, a, I was an early adopter of Mac stuff. So I was, I was keyed into that stuff a lot, a lot, even in, in college and before that. So I, 
Did I have an addictive personality? Probably. And I will say this. I know this about myself and I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit it. And I still struggle with this a little bit. I didn't think it was worth doing something unless I could be the very best at it. Like literally remarkably very best at it. Like, like on some level, Seth Godin has a book called The Dip and he talks mm-hmm. about being the, very, the best in the world at something. But the thing is, is you get to define what the world is, which is to say the best service in a dental office in Saginaw. I can be the best in the world at that because that's my world. But, but like for me, I felt like if someone was better than you at it, then it wasn't even worth trying. And I have to say, I've passed that on to my, my youngest son. He's a perfectionist. And the other thing is perfectionism. When you say perfectionism, people think, oh, that must just mean you're really good at stuff. No, no, not at all. That's not what it means at all. It not means all. that if I can't be awesome at it, I'm, I'm either not going to try or I'm going to really struggle when I'm not great at it. And that was, that was dental school for me. That was dental school for me. The funny thing is in college, you know, you didn't have to do that. Because everyone else was kind of doing what you were doing. And it was not that hard to be kind of better than everyone else in college at the stuff, right? Like, you know, I, I didn't feel like, but at one point, like I, I played the saxophone and I was in the marching band and, and the jazz ensemble and stuff in college. And, and I, I was not good, but I didn't try very hard. You know, the story right. is like, you, you know, didn't care. You know, it was okay. You know, well, I, I would have loved to have been awesome and like naturally excellent at it, but I definitely wasn't willing to put the time in. And, you know, the right. people who are really good. They put the time in is That's what it comes down to. And that, that doesn't change with freaking anything. But I was nope. kind of unwilling to hear that. So on some level, I had a perfectionist streak in me that, that really I didn't understand or I didn't suffer from until I got to dental school. Because dental school, uh, not only was perfectionism hard, you also got beat up pretty good. So like, you know, like the very first preparation I ever did on a plastic typodont tooth for a class one amalgam. You did it, and then you you let your instructor look at it, and they graded you as harshly on that as they were going to grade you on any practical. For, the very first time you touched a burr to a tooth, the expectation was the same. Like they didn't say, "Go try this," and then we'll. T-. No, it was they graded you on the same criteria that they were going to grade you on the on the practical. Worse than that, they're grading you as if they were doing the preparation. They've been yeah. doing it for twenty years. Yeah, exactly. And because there wasn't actual decay or a busted tooth or anything like that. You had to follow the criteria that were set up that were completely artificial criteria because your preparation depends on the tooth. But these were plastic teeth that didn't have decay or they weren't broken. So you did what you, you know, it was like a a perfect storm for someone with a perfectionistic streak that wasn't very good with their hands. I mean, it was it was awful. I did terrible with that. Like I did pretty well with with academic classes, but but the hands on preclinical stuff was was a true night. Second year of dental school was was I mean, I, I am certain that my classmates were sure that I was the one who was going to go postal. I think I was scary. I think I was, I literally was. I think I was scary because how many times would you wax, uh, get it checked off, you'd invest, they'd get checked off, you'd burn out and you'd cast, you'd miscast. And oh. you had to start the entire process all oh, over. Right from the beginning. Casting your own gold. And the other thing is, is why would anyone be any good at this the first time they ever did it? No one, no one. No. Why would they? No, Yet you, you were be. expected to be. You were expected to be. And when you weren't, you were, you know, degraded. You were shamed. Yeah, you were, you were shamed. And the other thing is when your other classmates did well with it and you didn't, uh, I, I remember thinking to myself, one step forward, three steps back, you know, always for everything in dental school. And it was just a mess. And that, and it, it was only the, it wasn't the academic stuff. Everyone had gotten through that stuff in college. So they had a handle on how to do that. See, I was but, just the opposite. So clinical, I loved the idea 
of doing that stuff. So I would work my ass off just like I said, in the first part of our session was I would just practice, man. I just kept on practice and practice and practice. I loved it. So it got easier because I just loved it. The academics is where I struggled. Mm-hmm. And I went to Michigan undergrad. I did okay, but I worked mm-hmm. hard. And then I got into Michigan dental school and these people are just way smarter than I was. It just came easier to them. They could read something, retain it. And I'm a guy that I got to read it three or four times. I got to reread it. I got to write it down. I got to look back at it. I can, I can problem solve, but like strict memorization is really challenging. For I'm gifted or cursed with that kind of memory. It's, yeah. I know I said it before. I, I know that that sounds arrogant. I don't even mean it as arrogant because I literally don't know where it comes from. I am the guy you want on your trivia team. Yeah. I'm creepy about that stuff. I yeah. really am. And I don't even know where it comes from. I just, so I have a memory like that. As I get older, I think, I think I, I, I remember stuff from a long time ago really well. I don't necessarily remember what I did earlier today as well, but, <laughs> Welcome but to I mean, 50s. like I have, I definitely would like, I could go to class. And the other thing is I was, as I mentioned, I had a laptop. So, and I can type like the wind. So I'd take pretty good notes, but I typically didn't even have to really go over the notes because wow. usually if, if it went in my brain, usually it was kind of there. And so the academics for me wasn't super, it's not that I didn't study, but you remember second year when you'd have four tests in a week, you never even had enough time to really study this stuff. Cause you were just, you just got crushed by the last one. And the next right. one's tomorrow, or you'd have right. multiple tests in a day. Like how much can one study for that stuff? And that's where having a memory like mine really helped because, you know, you literally only had so much time to study this stuff and I, but it was in there. So it's kind of a, I lucked out that way. Honestly, that may, it might've been what carried me because I, you know, clinically I struggled so hard with the, with the hand and eye skills so bad. So I got a story for you. When I was in dental school, I've told this story before at Michigan, they have this, uh, the law library, which is this very Oxfordian looking yeah. library. Yeah. It's really beautiful. It's yeah. like out of Harry Potter. Yeah, it is. And their study tables. They're not pews. They're study tables. And they are just lined up the length of the uh, the library. And I was a Saturday night. I'll never forget this. So Saturday night, I was studying gross anatomy. I was charting the veins in the hand. I was seating all the way into the very back of the library, facing the back wall so I wouldn't be distracted. Mm-hmm. And at Michigan on a Saturday night, it didn't even matter if it was a football Saturday, libraries would be packed. This is just sort of how Michigan was. Mm-hmm. And so it's midnight. I'm facing the back of the library. And all of a sudden, I hear people laughing. And I'm like... I don't know what this is about, but I think it's about me. So, cause there's never any laughter in, in the Michigan library. So mm-hmm. I started folding up my books Four of my classmates came in. They had nylons over their face. You couldn't do this today, but yeah, this yeah. a long time ago. They had hoodies yeah. on and they literally picked me up out of my chair, grabbed my backpack. I had my shoes off. They grabbed my shoes. They carried me out into the back of the Jeep, literally threw me into the back of a Jeep and said, this is the last time you're studying on a Saturday night. Saturday night. Yeah. And, uh, and truly, and it wasn't for these, uh, but they were all a lot smarter than me. A lot of them were sort of like you, they had incredible retention with knowledge, uh, but it did save me. It was, it was quite the experience. And- so I, I had a, in college, in undergrad, uh, I had, I had had in, in, in high school, Probably the best teacher I've ever had in my entire life in all of my education was a high school advanced biology teacher. Advanced biology in high school was two hours. He was tough. Mr. Kosky was, he was also the track coach and I ran track and I sucked at track, but Mr. Kosky is literally one of the biggest, like he looms large on my life. And anyhow, with advanced biology in high school, there wasn't anything in my zoology curriculum at Miami that I hadn't seen before. Uh, Anything unreal, mm -hmm. unreal. So I'm like, well, so I kind of, I came in kind of preloaded with the right. Sure stuff for one thing. But then, but the one thing I'll say in high school, I never took physics in high school. I took geoscience. I took geoscience my 10th grade year, even though everyone else was taking chemistry because my parents, my sister had had a hard time with chemistry. So my parents maybe wait to take chemistry to 11th grade. So I had geoscience, which I love. Geology is great. But anyhow, 
I never got to take physics in high school. So I took physics in college and everyone in physics had had physics before, but me. Sure. And, and I'd go to the lectures, you know, I was, I didn't skip much of that stuff. I, I, uh, but what would happen for the tests, two other guys and I would study for a couple days in advance of the test. We'd go to one of the, um, I remember this vividly and they should have murdered me. They would teach me the stuff. They would teach me how to do it. And then I would crush the test and, and they, they would, they may or may not have crushed the test. I don't, I, but, but like there, I think I did better than them on the test a lot of times. And they literally like, they spoon fed me. Oh my gosh. I mean, I understand making it through a course because of someone else. Cause I had never had physics before. Right. Right. And they had had it and they, and they were, you know, it's funny. And I, I really, I really value the fact that they were there for me, but I also could see why they wouldn't want to study with me anymore. Cause I would, <laughs> I basically would sponge off them that way. But again, I think it's helped. It's, it has been helpful to have the kind of memory that I have. It's a weird, weird thing. So let me ask you with your struggles with the clinical, you know, clinical portion of dental school and stuff. So what, what was your coping mechanism? Like, how'd you deal with the stresses? Like, it's funny. So, so in college, I turned 21 summer, summer for my senior year. And so mm-hmm. I hadn't, I hadn't really drank that much, but I caught up pretty good my senior year. I drank, I, I, I was kind of a wild and crazy senior and your senior year in college, I got accepted to Minnesota on Christmas break. Actually, it was like, it was like, it might've been New Year's Eve on Christmas break when I was a senior. So my second semester senior year, I already knew I was in dental school. And yeah, so I, I, I had to, I had to figure, I had to finish up and had to, you know, had to not fail out or whatever, but I, but right. the pressure was kind of off. And so I, I, I had a pretty wild and crazy second semester, my, my senior year of college, but frankly, nothing like what a lot of people had the entire time. I didn't, I wasn't a, I wasn't a fraternity guy. I was not, I was in the marching band. I will say this marching band, they drank like fish too. So I wasn't social with the marching band. I have regrets about that. Not necessarily because of the alcohol, but like I know a lot of these marching band people on Facebook now and they're great. And I was mm-hmm. not sociable with them because I just I didn't do that kind of stuff. You know, I've right. in any case, I kind of started drinking like a college student when I was a senior. So I was I was kind of behind on that deal. But I got to dental school living in this moved into the Sio house and literally the day before. Now they call it a white coat ceremony. They didn't call right. it that when I was there, but, but like that. the first day of school, you go in and you get talked about how, how amazing the career, blah, blah, blah. You know, the night before that, a bunch of the SIO guys and I went out and got hammered, like, like really hammered. Like just, I showed up and I'm like, oh, so this is how it's going to be. You know, that's kind of the, and uh, so I was hung over my very first day of dental school, <laughs> sort of set the tone a little bit for me. But I, even then, I didn't know what I was getting into. What I realized was that I, my coping mechanism, I didn't realize this at the time. It's only afterwards that I could sure. see why dental school is like this. I didn't come in with any coping mechanisms because I hadn't faced the kind of challenges, the kind of, not only the academic challenges, which clearly it's more rigorous than college. But I, you know, like I said, I had some, I had some skill set to, to manage that. But the, the whole concept of not of going into something brand new, like the, like the preclinical stuff and, and, and actually having a hand and eye still, because let's be honest, dentistry on some level is a surgical, you know, oh, absolutely. It's, a, it's a surgical, I mean, a dentist who can diagnose, but doesn't do the surgery. You're not a dentist. I mean, That's it's like the different. reality is, is like, it's great that you know the Krebs cycle, but you know, it, can you spin a handpiece? And that, and, and we're microsurgeons. We're microsurgeons. Exactly. Yeah. And, and no one, no one even really walks in. No one, like, it's not like my dad was a dentist, so I got to practice prepping teeth on him. I remember, I, don't know, no, I, right. I, I wish that I had for crying out loud. 
Mm-hmm. I will say I poured some models in my dad's office. That was about it. But, but that's macro. That's not yeah, micro. It is. It is. Well, in any case, so you see, go in there. It's like it's just a whole new skill set. And I wasn't good at it. There were other people around me that seemed naturally good at it. I wasn't. So that was a first for me. And I was like, wow, this is like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not such great shakes anymore. You know, like and that that was tough on my ego. But what I found was that okay, so at the Sci Omega house, we had a pop machine. It was 50 cents for a can of pop. Uh, in, the, in they had like a it was a pool table and we, where we hung all the bikes and all this. It was sort of a living room area. And right next to the pot machine was a kegerator. And the kegerator was free. Free. Yeah. So the story is I had, it was 50 cents for a pop or all the beer you could drink for free. You know, like that, that sort of set the culture. Yep. And dentistry is no different now than it is then. I mean, like, which meeting do you want to go to? Do you want to go to the meeting that has a bar where you can buy drinks or do you want the open bar? Open bars <laughs> for an hour. You know, that's, that's how, that's how things sort of are. You're sort of like, that hasn't changed very much to be no. perfectly honest. But so I had my coping mechanism was that I knew I could change these feelings. When I, I, and I never, this is in fine focus now, but at the time, I mean, it just made me feel better to, to yeah. know that I could, I could have a few. I wasn't a blackout drunk in dental school. It's not like I drank so much that I didn't show up for school or whatever, sure. but, but I drank. I mean, by the time I was a junior, I was the guy who was trying to drag people out to sub and herbs on Tuesday, you know, like, like, wait a second, it's Tuesday. Okay. I, I understand Friday, maybe even Thursday afternoon, but, uh, but Tuesday and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, and maybe because I didn't struggle so much with the academic stuff and I was like, just trying to make myself feel better for sucking right. at everything else. I don't know. But I mean, like, I sort of realized that this could make me feel better. And yes. I remember vividly ninth floor labs, you know, by the time we were in clinic, I remember vividly going, you know, you know, it'd be right. Good right now is a beer. <laughs> A beer would go pretty good right now. Like, like the little voice in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. And that voice kind of never went away after a while. And like, you know, when I'm feeling this way, that voice was there. And so when I had those feelings, it was, it was just, I knew that I could change the way I felt. And it's not like the problems went away after I, I got back from my little trip to, to being, being drunk. But somehow just making myself feel better from it was enough, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But so that's, I developed that as a coping skill. Drinking was my coping skill. Probably, probably the most common maybe maybe marijuana sure. you know maybe sure. pot but yeah. uh certainly one of those well, it, gotta yeah. be the most common well partly because it's socially acceptable see i i didn't know and i don't know how everyone else drank i can't make that judgment but i looked like everyone else i looked i i drank like everyone else it's not like i drank 10 times as much as everyone else and fell on the floor and passed out i didn't so i didn't but in retrospect i drank because i was i wanted to change the way i felt i yeah, yeah. it did make me more sociable for sure mm-hmm. it did it did make me it made me more funny. It made me more, you know, it made me more sociable for sure. I did not probably have a drinking problem in dental school, but one of the reasons I didn't was because a lot of the, I lived close enough to walk to school. I lived every, the entire four years of dental school. I never had to drive anywhere. Like I didn't have to drive in from home right. or park to go to school. I either lived at the Sio house, which was walking distance, or there was an apartment complex over a horrible, a horrible convenience store the food basket, which no longer exists. Man. And we called it the Sci Omega retirement home. It was all the people that <laughs> lived at Sci-O for, for three years. We all, we all got our own apartments and we thought it was great. The apartments were not good, but they were, they were better than living in a tiny room at the Sci-O sure. house. And there's no, of course. But the bottom line is like, I could walk to class. It's not like I was driving drunk because I didn't have to. It's not like I was, you know, and the other thing is, is that I could stumble home from anywhere and it was not a big deal. And, and yep. it was the campus. So it was relatively safe. safe. So, so I was on some level, you don't realize you have a problem until there's, there's consequences of your actions. And I just didn't really have that. You know, I sure. just didn't have that. So, so I don't know that I was a problem drinker at that time. But so when I graduated from dental school, I got home, I, I got an apartment. I started working with my dad after I got my license. And, and you realize that for one thing, you got to drive everywhere around here. I didn't have, I didn't have a neighborhood that I could just walk. Right. But it's also weird to just 
just drink all the time. Like right. people thought that was kind of weird, you know, you didn't. and I will say in retrospect, my wife pointed out the fact that I had a lot of empty bottles around my apartment. So I did still drink, but I, but I probably did it alone in my apartment, which is also pretty weird. For, yeah, that's a problem. So coincidentally at the time, right, right in 98, 97, 98, there was a, a Noel Pharmaceuticals came out with a new, a new medication. They were marketing heavy to dentists. You probably remember it's called Vicoprofen. And Vicoprofen is, is Vicodin, but it's, but instead of, instead of the combination with acetaminophen, it's, it's with ibuprofen. I don't even know if they still make it, honestly. It's probably, a, it's probably, a, probably a better medication for pain than, than Vicodin, Vicodin because Vicodin, like, honestly, acetaminophen and dental pain are like, eh, you know, it's, but they marketed it pretty heavy to dentists. I don't know if you remember the, the they had a cheetah sitting in, in a dental chair. Apparently it was supposed to work fast. I don't know. Cheetahs are fast. I don't know. I'm guessing that's, but literally I was looking back a couple of weeks ago, like I had this, this clock a Vicoprofen clock from whatever the drug reps and it had a cheetah in the background. And apparently there was a beanie baby involved. That was a cheetah beanie, the Vicoprofen cheetah beanie baby. Oh, you remember that, beanie babies yeah. were the oh, thing. Sure. So I'm sure that's probably worth thousands of dollars right now. If you got the beanie baby, but anyhow, they also would give you these postcards that if you filled out, they'd send you a box of Vicoprofen to dispense to your patients for post-operative pain. And that's how I got started with opiates. I'd love to tell you that I, I sprained my ankle and needed, I never did. I, I, I wanted to try it because I knew I liked, I knew a buzz made me feel better. I was already using that as a coping mechanism, maybe not consciously, but in my dad would, I had availability of Valium diazepam for patients. We had nitrous oxide. So I exposed myself to some of that stuff after I started the Vicoprofen. It didn't take, literally my entire dental career on some level was, was shaped by the fact that I started taking this stuff and realized this is what I need in my life because I can't just drink all the time. I have to. So this was, I, I started with opiates because it was, it was harder to see what you were doing. Yeah, and, like you could do it during the day and no one would know exactly. You didn't smell like alcohol. You didn't. And it was a different kind of buzz. You, you weren't, you know, sloppy or, or necessarily or whatever. And like you, right now you wonder if, if people have this because marijuana is kind of everywhere and, and in Michigan shooting marijuana is, is legal as a, as a recreational drug, but you can, if you're smoking, you can smell it. On it. You know, right. it's hard to, so that's the thing about the opiates. You can't really, there's no outward indication unless you can see their eyes and see the, the pinpoint pupils, but people weren't really looking for that. So that's how I got started with opiates. So what was it about? So dental school, there's all that pressure. Uh -huh. Then, then you're in dentistry, you're yep. practicing with your dad. Yep. And what were the pressures as a young dentist in that practice that was sort of, that was continuing this, this It's a great question. It, it really, I didn't have any pressure. Dad was, dad was kind of a perfect mentor in that way. He loved having me there and, and I could have done kind of whatever I wanted to. But as a lot of practices with associates are, it wasn't probably quite busy enough for the both of us. For sure. When I got there, yep. I wasn't as busy as maybe I wanted to be. That's what I kind of remember. It's been a long time, but, but also I'm not going to lie to you, but like, I don't know that there was that much pressure. Sometimes what is the pressure? The pressure is what's in my head. So maybe I right. perceived the pressure more than there was. I mean, dad paid me more than I was worth for sure. And I, my patient load wasn't too awful bad. And, and I mean, I, I don't know, I can't, uh, looking back, I don't remember it being particular, but yet as a young dentist, I felt pressure. You know, I felt like my only coping mechanism. And as it turns out, if you get to that point, you like to be high is what it really comes down to. I mean, I can say that it was just sort of pressure. addicted to being, yeah, I like the buzz. You know, I definitely, I definitely in dental school definitely taught me to like a buzz. So I definitely liked a buzz and I didn't have the same social situation where I could go to the bar with friends and walk home. I, I mean, yeah. it was clearly not. So I guess maybe I was looking for that, but I, I think if your mind is used to dealing with stress and everything is a stressful thing, well, you kind of almost generate your own on some right. Oh, so, you'll, you'll find it. If you yeah. want stress, it's there. You just yeah. Yeah, I look, back, look very far. I look back, I had a pretty cushy situation working for dad. I don't know why I felt stressed. In any case, 
So I must have thought that I didn't have enough work and I was looking. And the practice that I'm in right now sort of fell in my lap. The guy who I bought the practice from had just walked out. He was just done. So the team was still trying to keep his practice afloat. So I was, I walked in as an associate to just try and kind of work on his patients because he, he'd been gone for several weeks and everyone's like, what are we, you know, you can only, you can only run an office without a dentist for so long. Yeah. And so I, I went in there to help out because I wasn't that busy. It was in Saginaw. And all of a sudden I realized it's a lot easier to get dope because I started with the bike and profen at dad's office when I was an associate with dad. A lot easier to get dope in the office when it's just me. I don't yeah, have anyone looking sure. over my shoulder and stuff right. like that. So, so that was a motivating factor to go into my own practice, which is like, I'm not particularly proud of that, but it is what it is. You know, that's sure. sort of a, and so I ended up in my own practice. When you're in your own practice and you don't know anything about running a business or anything like that, there's the stress for you. Well, that's what I was, that's what I was wondering. I mean, that's stress, right? Yeah. Oh I yeah. Mean, oh, totally. Owning yeah. a practice and doing all that stuff on your own. And the but staff, something that's and... really interesting. Okay. When you own a practice for the first time and you're the one putting the deposits in the bank, you're like, wow, you get paid pretty good for this. You know, except for the fact that like, I didn't know what I needed to do for taxes and payroll and, and insurance. And, and, you know, I, I was in my suite cost next to nothing. So I, I literally went into a practice that was low producing, but it also had really low overhead. And so, but I still was like, not, I was not ready for any of this stuff. And so when you start seeing money come in like that, you start feeling like a rich guy until you realize that you can't just spend everything. You kind of have, Who knew? There, there's that whole overhead thing. And I, I mean, they kept me on the straight and narrow on some level, but so it was pretty stressful. I, and the other thing is, you know, when you get a bill that you've forgotten to pay and all of a sudden someone's <sighs> calling you on the phone or something, you know, like, cause I don't care what it, that happens. That yeah. happens. That happens now. I had one. I had, God, my my workman's comp insurance. Apparently, I don't know if they email it or no, 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 no. It's better than this. They changed the, I, it's the same company I've used for a thousand years. They changed my account number. It was a new account number. And so I went on the website and it, I didn't know anything, but it was just on that account number. I did on the other account number. I didn't get to the point where they were trying to collect where I lost the insurance. Where, but that stuff happens to business oh, yeah. owners all the time, especially Absolutely. if you're running it yourself. And I never, Absolutely. I never got anywhere beyond the fact that I kind of just run it myself. So the dumb mistakes still happen. They're not such a big deal now. But in any case, imagine doing that to a kid who didn't know what he's doing oh, for sure. and who's, who's like literally also trying desperately to make sure he keeps enough dope around. So he's not going to withdraw all the time. Cause that's what I was doing at that point. You know, it, it was a, it was a shit show, nothing short of that, but it was the shit show that I had built basically. What so, did you like? So I think if I remember right, it was about four years, right? That you're on mm -hmm. opiates. Basically. You were married in right? 1998. I got married while I was in trouble. So in 1998, I started, and that's when I met my wife, actually. She was honestly her, I, I had worked at a day camp with her older sister and they were kind of the only social contacts I had back home. So I met her, we started dating in 1990. That's kind of when I started getting into trouble with this stuff. And then it was a four years, it ramped up. And honestly, we got married three days before September 11th. It was September 8th, 2001. I was in the middle of, of addiction. Literally, I went into treatment the January after we got married. So, so it was a... Um, it was a mess. She didn't really know what was going on. She was very naive about it. I bet it but, is. I mean, if you're not if you're not around it, I don't think that most people would be able to. Yeah. Recognize it. I mean, what's funny is she didn't. She was naive. I tried to hide it, but I was also I was a mess. I mean, I, on some level, but she just didn't know. She didn't know what was going on. Right. And but a lot of other people did know what was going on uh, on some level. But I I hid it I, and I used alone. That was the other thing. People, it's it's a very different thing when you're a drug user. And you use alone versus you use, I mean, a lot of people in recovery, I know with, you know, used to, used to drink together with other people sure. they would use together. And the, so the rituals that go with it are a little different when you use alone. That's kind of interesting. And I mean, my whole ritual was, was scoring, having enough until I got in withdrawal and scoring again kind of thing. That was, and I, I mean, I literally had probably three and a half solid years of, of the panic of whether or not I was going to have enough stuff. So I wasn't going to be messed up, you know, 
in withdrawal. It was, it was, a, it was a, a ridiculous cycle. It was a ridiculous cycle. When this is all happening, and I, I'm just asking because I don't know, is there, is there somewhat of like an imposter syndrome you're trying to like overcome? Like I'm a dentist, first of all, like, so you're, you're, you struggle with the clinical aspect. So then it's like, should I even be doing this? Mm-hmm. And then you got all the stresses of running the practice and all the other things that are associated with that. Is there some of that that was going on? Yeah, I will say this. First off, when this was all going on, social media didn't exist. Thank I got into de- I got into dental town literally like the year I got clean. So I got into dental town 2002, but prior to that, I didn't know what everyone else was doing. Part of the imposter syndrome is knowing what other people, you know, comparing yourself to what other yeah. people are doing. I didn't even know. Like I didn't know and I I certainly wasn't paying attention, that's for sure. But the imposter syndrome was part of it, I'm sure. And I didn't, it's really funny. My dad, my dad ran my practice while I was in, in rehab and he said he didn't see anything too awful bad at what was going on. So, you know, it's one of these things where like, I don't know if I was bad, good or otherwise, but I mean, I knew I struggled with clinical stuff, but I also, I still, to this day, I'm not someone who does stuff that I'm not pretty confident of. I'm not, I'm not sure. the most adventurous dentist. So I guess maybe I had that going for me. Like I wasn't out there doing stuff that I didn't know what I was doing for the most part. But I think, I think there was partly some of that, but I think, I think most of it was, I got started with this stuff because I like to get high. You just liked it. Yeah. And then I got got so sucked into it that I was sick if I didn't have this stuff. And, and so the, the stress of owning and running a practice and being a dentist was almost just the sidelight of my addiction. I hate to say it, but I mean, being a dentist is hard enough, but being a dentist while trying to, to have an active addiction going. And, and cause the other thing is, is, you know, I spent all kinds of money on stuff that I didn't have. You don't make great choices when you're in the middle of addiction for a lot of, a lot of things. So that made it more stressful. Money was always a stress trying to keep a relationship going while you're like, basically everything in your life is sort of on the back burner compared to your addiction, but you're putting out to the world that you've got it all together. Right. That gets harder and harder, the worse your, your addiction gets, you know? Now, now you're 20 years sober now, right? I am. Yeah. I, I, Congratulations. January 10th, uh, 2002 was when I, when I got intervened on and went into treatment. So yeah, it's it 20 years this year. What was your intervention like? Like, how did that all, how did that all roll in? <laughs> so one of my really good friends, uh, he's an oral surgeon. He still is an, he's an oral surgeon in town. We actually started in Saginaw on the same day. He figured out what was going on. Long story short, I think he figured it out first. Cause I had, I had like this, it was either an ingrown hair or a lipoma or something like that. It was a big knot on my neck. And I asked him to, I asked him to, to take it out or take and of course, I also wanted to be sedated and I knew he'd write me a prescription. So like I was doing all kinds of stuff. If, if there was a way to score a prescription, I was going to probably do it. So this was in my mind. Little did I know, I mean, this is a cry for help. When a dude tries to sedate someone who's got a, a wicked opiate habit with fentanyl and he's, he's ready to drop a bolus of fentanyl on you and it doesn't do anything. And then the second one, it doesn't do anything. You're kind of telegraphing what's going on a little bit. Oh, so he dug in a little deeper and figured out what was going on. And he, then he went to my family and they, they kind of planned the intervention from there. And he kind of got my team involved. My team knew it was going on, but it's tough because a lot of people are like your team should have really, no, I'm yeah. writing their paycheck. You know, right. you can't expect, I've had so many people say, oh, well, the licensed members of your team, they had a, they had a, I'm like, that's great. Yeah. It's great that you understand that, that if you have a license, you have a, you have an obligation, but you know what? Real life is a lot more complicated than that. And punishing them for not turning me in, that's not going to work. Cause no. that's not, that's not going to work anywhere. Bottom line, they would have loved to help me, but they also knew that like, they kind of, they, I think they felt like they helped me by crashing the schedule. If I was in a really bad spot or making sure that I was going in the right direction. And they, they sort of like, just like a spouse with a drinking husband, yeah. you know, like they kind of make up, it, it becomes more of a codependency thing where you're kind of trying to make up for the addiction instead of confronted face on. Like if it had happened, I have two members of my team right now were there while I was doing that. Like they're wow. still with me. So they were, they actually went into treatment with 
with me and did, you know, family day stuff, all this stuff. Like they've been there, they know it and they would call me on it now, but they wouldn't, they didn't know that then. Why would they? On some level, it took someone from the outside to realize how messed up it was to get it to get. And my parents, I snowed them pretty good too. I mean, in retrospect, they can kind of see some of the stuff, but so once they figured it out, they all came in on, basically they came in on an afternoon and took me away. (laughs) They, they took me to a a treatment center in, in Grand Rapids, which is a couple hours from Saginaw. And it was a treatment center that was mostly for healthcare professionals. Oh, interesting. The first several nights I spent in a, a detox center, I saw some real stuff there. I saw some real real street addiction there. That was nuts, man. I was like in a room with a dude who was like literally dying of cirrhosis of the liver. He was regularly bleeding out. you like, cause he had drank so much. I sure I saw like actual street addicts from heroin. Here's this, this guy who came in in the clothes he wore to work, you know, khakis and a nice shirt. That's all the clothes I had who was addicted to pills. And there part of me felt like I, well, I didn't qualify because I was different than them. And it's one of the reasons, one of the things about recovery is that everyone qualifies. <laughs> you don't yeah. worry, you qualify. I mean, it was pretty raw. And then I moved into this, it was an inpatient outpatient. So we lived in apartments and then we did the therapy at the building. I was in with a bunch of nurses and anesthesiologists, physicians, um, a few lawyers, you know, a few, but I was in with a couple other dentists and stuff like that. So, it, and it was a, it was a four and a half, almost five month program that I was in. Wow. And I was gone from the office that old my dad. So my dad kind of ran my office, helped it limp along, you know, and, what, and what they tell your patients while you're at uh, rehab, they told, you know, it's really funny. The guy who was running the the committee that I eventually was running, I told them to tell them it was a back problem. So everyone, they told everyone I had a, had a back problem. Well, meanwhile, how many years later, 20 some years later, I, I got hit by a truck and actually broke my back, which is <laughs> ironic, but I didn't take any opiates for that either, by the way. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, really that used to frustrate me because you're not supposed to lie about stuff like that. You don't have to tell the world everything, but you're not supposed to lie. So that was always a struggle. But like people would years later would ask me how my back was doing. I was sure, sort of, of about that. So they told them that. But, you know, if you're in that situation, understand your patient, no matter how well you know your patients, they don't, you don't owe them an explanation. A lot of my patients know that I'm in recovery. Like, sure, I'm pretty public about it. But, you know, I didn't necessarily wave a flag about it when I was, um, but I will say this. When I got back from treatment, I was on a contract, a pretty tight contract. The very first time I ever did a, a random drug screen, the person who came out to, to administer the drug screen was a patient of mine. So, oh, come on. No, I'm serious. So that, that was real. That actually happened. Wow. And so humility, humility, you, you'll get humility whether you want it or not. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. sort of happens. Wow. Huh? Yeah. In any case. Yeah. So I was in treatment for four and a half months and, uh, I, honestly, I've never relapsed. That was, that's an interesting thing. A lot of people, you know, like I, I, all the time. I, I will say this, that every once in a while, while I was using, while I was in trouble, you'd be like your head had come up above the water and you'd be like, this is crazy. I can't be, this is insane. You know, I, I got to stop. I can't. So there were times that I tried to stop. I just was never able to do it on my own. But as soon as I admitted, you know, I was in a treatment center, I had admitted my problem. I was ready to start working. You know, I, I didn't want to go back. So that was, so interestingly, I was, I'm, I'm an odd duck that way because I was ready to stop. I just didn't, I had never literally I mean, I probably heard of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. I never went. I didn't know anything right. about it. So like on some level, I just didn't know. I had no idea that there was an option to not do this. I was, and, and I had, the brakes had come off. I wasn't even trying to stop anymore. That was before when I got, when I got um, intervened on. When you're, when you're in the uh, rehab experience, because I've never been, and I think probably a lot of the listeners haven't been through that. What, what's, what's it like? It's funny because I can say this. First off, this is awful, but true. If you don't want to get better, it doesn't work. So sure. on the same way that, you know, if you've got gum disease and you're not willing to, to work a little harder and do a little better, you're going to probably have gum disease forever. Mm-hmm. You're going to probably loosen teeth. You know, if you don't want, you don't want to get better. More. Sometimes being around it long enough, you'll decide you want to get better. Like a, a treatment center where you're there for a while and you're not going anywhere. Some people can, you know, they can decide they want to get better. That's why on some level having 
AA meetings or NA meetings or something like that, where you can build a community around people who kind of have what you want, which is to say sobriety and a little peace of mind. That's hugely powerful. Mm-hmm. It, basically, treatment was like living around that for four and a half, five months straight. So it was, it's bordering on cultish the way that you just changed everything about your life. The problem is, is that when you're in treatment, you can get to a point where it's very safe. You're around safe people and stuff. Sure. But, so the treatment center I worked with understood that, and they made a big effort to make sure that you had a good start at back where you in your community in your to build a safe space around yourself back home rather than well that's and that that's made a big a issue. Difference. It's it is it is the issue actually honestly because anyone can be in a treatment center and well not anyone there are people there are people that relapsed in treatment when I was there to be perfectly honest is that right but, oh no kidding oh yeah oh yeah I had one of my friends who's an anesthesiologist hung himself in the in the, one of the apartments I mean I'm he sorry was, to hear that. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Like I, so I'd seen a lot. Of, I saw a lot of stuff in four and a half months, and it was a lot of stuff that I didn't want to. I didn't. I didn't want any part of that anymore. So it was like I had a really powerful experience, and it was it was kind of important to. I think I think it was the right place, the right time, and the right people for me. I I know tons of people that that go in, they're dragging their feet, and they don't think they have a problem. That's that's most often that's what it is. It's the problem's you. It's not me. You know, it's one of those things. I was pretty quick to see that I had a problem, but maybe because what I was doing was so crazy. When you had your intervention, and so they're sitting down with you, are you like, "Yep, let's go"? I understand. <laughs> I've been waiting for this. I was. Thank God I you was. guys showed up. The TV Where shows, the TV shows that that were that show the person fighting and yelling and screaming. I would have been horrible TV. I'm like, yeah, I've tried, so I can't do. It. Let's go. I, I totally, I didn't fight at all. I just, I was ready to go, which I think is pretty rare. And interestingly, my my family. It was my family and Scott, the guy who kind of figured it out. They're the ones that came for me. They didn't have an interventionist or anything like that. And I just went. I will say this. My brother-in-law parked my car in Starsky and Hutch style, so I couldn't leave. You know, it was one of those things. But I, I was ready to go. They took me to Grand Rapids right from there. So I, I started I started off on the right foot that way. It's crazy to think that that was like 20, some, like 20 years ago is 20 when years I was ago. in treatment. Yeah, I was, a, I, I was in till May of 2002. So I, I would have been right in the middle of it right now, 20 years ago. What was it like when you went back to the dental office for the first time? Oh, it was great. Well, first remember? off, they, they, they did it so that you'd go back while you were in treatment for like a short day or, you know, it's not like you'd go in and, and I, I don't know if, I don't even know if I, I might've just done exams or something relatively light because my dad had been working there for a long time. They kind of set the guideposts so you could get back and comfortable. But in the meantime, you know, my team had been coming to Grand Rapids and doing group therapy with me. Uh-huh. You know, everyone, everyone else that was in treatment with me hated my guts because I, I was at first, I was, I was the only person who would bring their team in. And so everyone else was bugging them to bring their team in because it was really important and helpful for everyone. But I think my team was freaked out and my dad was freaked out because they also didn't want you to be thinking about work. They didn't want you to be thinking about the office. And they're like, you've got to concentrate on you. And, And I did. So the office and my dad working in my office thought that, I didn't want to come back. They, oh, right. I wasn't talking about it because they didn't think I, they thought I didn't want anything to do with it. Well, you took their advice to heart. And then I did. Why are you listening to us? I don't think they, the, the people that were at the treatment center, let the people <laughs> that I lived with and worked with know that that was part of the deal. You know, yeah. in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I'll get back there eventually. But and the other thing is a lot of people I was in treatment with, they were making big changes in their life. Like I'm going to move to Florida. I'm going to, I'm going to move with it. And of course, that's a terrible thing to do when, <laughs> when you're like, don't make big choices when you had more stress three months. Exactly. You came in making terrible choices. Guess what? You're still making pretty terrible choices without some help. So on some level, having, having like a comfortable place, it was wild to come back. I don't, I'm sure it was really uncomfortable, but the bottom line is that I had, I, I would go back for like a day at a time. And then at one point they had what was called an extended therapeutic leave. And I was there for a week, you know, and I, I was going to meetings. I was, so it was, they, they knew what they were doing with regard to getting you back into it. But I also, I'm not going to lie. 
I, I brought everything to the table and I made, like I said, I did therapy with my team. I made sure I knew exactly where I was going for meetings. I made sure there were people back, you know, and I, there was a ton of accountability built into it. And so, cause I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to, I, looking back, I, I mean, I'd love to take all the credit for it, but I was just like, I just did what everyone else said. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to do. You know, I took nitrous out of the office. I didn't have nitrous in the office. I literally, I, I talked with a guy a year or so after I got out who, who said nitrous is such an important part of my practice. I can't, he was in treatment. I'm like, dude, you got, you got to not use nitrous. You can't do it. Oh no, no, I got it. It's too important in my practice. Guess what? He went back and went out and relapsed on nitrous. I mean, so, so many things, any, if it's as obvious as that, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to happen that way. So I just took their advice basically. <laughs> Did you have kids at that point or were you guys uh you were married but with no kids? i was married i didn't have kids didn't have kids till um my first son was born in 2007 so i had been five years clean and sober by then so they they've never seen me while i was using mm -hmm. did the team have a lot of guilt as no. you guys were going through therapy no they're, no. they're okay the therapy was mostly about them explaining to me the effect that i had had on them <laughs> what, what what a piece of shit you were <laughs> pretty much yeah and and i mean like we can joke about it now i mean just imagine working with a team that knew you before this, but also now understanding what you've been through. Yeah. They know a lot. I mean, there's probably no team that knows more about addiction and, and stuff than, sure. than my team because they've kind of been through all of it. I don't think they felt guilty. They were pulling for me. They wanted me to come back. So that was mm -hmm. good. It could have been worse. They could have not no, wanted sure. me to come back. I mean, it was, it was a good situation that way. When you look at it, and I'm sure you've been asked this question a lot. Mm -hmm. What do you what do you advise to young dentists who maybe might be on the precipice or who might I've, just I've, I have to tell you, I've changed how I feel about this. And I yeah. people I, I I have actually become first off, alcohol and now marijuana are terrible choices that everyone should be allowed to make, I guess. I think alcohol as a whole, just societally, I think it's a negative. I think I think it's a net negative. I think more people can't handle alcohol than can. And I think I think we spend a lot of time as a society thinking we can the, the alcohol is is more benign than it actually is. I really do. I've come to that. I'm like, I think on net if I could do a Thanos snap and make it so alcohol never existed, I would. I would because I think I think it's a net. It's such a net negative. So here's my challenge. You shouldn't drink. <laughs> you shouldn't drink because it's too easy to fall into it. I know so many people who who have gotten in trouble with it, you know, and I, and of course you can't watch the Super Bowl. You can't, you can't have a, a, a meeting with your friends and stuff where, where alcohol isn't involved. So obviously oh, it's not sure. very realistic, but the bottom line is I think it's terrible, which is not what people I, I'm supposed to say. Well, you just need to make sure you handle it. First off, I don't, people don't handle it in general very well. So I think it's a bad thing, but I also live in the same world that you live in. So, I mean, I realize that it's a thing. <laughs> Understand that if, if you're asking, if you think you drink too much, normal people don't ask if they drink too much. <laughs> if, if, if you think you drink too much, you probably do. I've, I've advised people this here, go for a month without alcohol and see how hard it is. Is it hard for you to, to go for a month without drinking? Because if it is, you need to take a look at that. But I mean, like, I also tend to think that I was addicted to, op to opiates the same way that cigarette smokers are addicted to cigarettes. Sure. I mean, like it has that physical, sure. I mean, people can be physically addicted to alcohol, but it's more, you got to drink an awful lot before you're having really bad consequences of physical. The nicotine, on the other hand, if, if you're really addicted to cigarettes, very un it's a very uncomfortable uh, withdrawal, which is what I had. So on some level, it's kind of too bad that alcohol doesn't have that because that's a red flag that you kind of can't live without this. You need to take a look at that. But I, yeah, I was going to say, if you think you have a problem with alcohol, you probably should try 30 days without it and see what it's like. Because mm -hmm. it depends on how much of your life it's become a part of, you know. That's how I feel about it now. It's funny to think 20 years later, I've become like more more of a teetotaler than I than I am when I started. You know, I just think there's a net negative in general in society with alcohol. But so you need to be careful. And frankly, if you think that dentistry doesn't have a culture of alcohol in drinking, 
you're not looking hard enough. No, it's, it's there. Go, go to a meeting. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. I want to finish talking about coping mechanisms yeah. because I think that obviously is, is, is an issue. So mm-hmm. you're, I know, I mean, I've, I followed you for long enough. I, you have at least one horse. I don't know how many mm-hmm. horses you have. Yeah. Well, I don't. Okay. So my wife is the horse person we have. We, we have a boarding farm, so we feed like 12 horses. We have a miniature donkey. Uh, we have a bunch of goats, chickens, and stuff like that. But my wife is kind of the horse person. I, I don't mind feeding them, I, 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 although I have this injury on my foot. I haven't fed for a long time, but I also haven't ridden my damn bike. For three weeks. That was next. Yeah, but so we have horses. We live on a farm. We live out in the country, so we have some cool stuff that way. But if I need to remind myself that I do have a problem with addiction and addictive thinking, I don't have to go very far. For a while, it was with the podcast. Before that, it was with baking bread. For a long time, I was baking bread. To, you know, it was a weekend thing, and all of a sudden, I, I like had to do it during the week because I was so obsessed with. It. I was like a bread guy. But then I then I got into the podcast, and like I said, I, I still to this day I buy way more audio equipment than I ever need. It's and the other thing is being a dentist and having this podcast allows me to indulge that in a way that is like other podcasters don't or wouldn't. So in other words. I can make some pretty dumb choices and be, I'm sort of protected from the consequences because financially investing in that stuff is not such a horrible thing. But, but right. I've really gotten into cycling recently. I mean, in, until this wound on my foot came along, I was pretty much riding every day. And even in Michigan in wintertime, I never realized you could ride your bike, but sure like I got you a fat right, tire. As bike, long as you have the right bike, I got a fat tire bike with studs yeah. on it. I ride every day. I ride anyway, right outside of a tree, you know, it's, and, and I got trails that are literally just a left turn out of, out of my driveway if I want to. So it's like, I, and that's become an obsession. And so on some level that that's, and actually even in 2005, I lost a bunch of weight too. And the, and it was an obsessive thing too. It was kind of an addictive thing. So I clearly, I have that in me. Do you have heated gloves for your winter oh, bicycling? Of course I do, but I also have big. I have big ass pogies too. I got the big. I got both, and uh, like I said, I got I got two bikes, and I figured, well, I, I both of them probably need studded tires, and so these are things. And the other thing is, if you don't if you don't know anything about cycling, like in 2022, they're not giving that stuff away. They are not giving <laughs> no. that stuff away. I mean, no, like like you can't even get into a decent bike for like less than four thousand dollars at this point. You know, and and they make bikes a lot different than they did 20 years ago. Let's just it's say not that. your Schwinn. You're not riding your dad's. No, Schwinn. that's right. Yeah, it's the mid 80s Schwinn is not like you might be able to get a bunch of money for that as a collector's item it's because cyclists are bike. insane. Yeah, exactly. But but the reality is, yeah, you're not. Uh, and of course, the other thing about cyclists is in Instagram and all the in social media and the poison that that stuff is. My entire Instagram feed is full of beautiful teeth and killer bikes, killer bikes. I mean, and I, I can't stop. I'm obsessed. You know, like the other thing is I'm, I've got kind of a gravel bike. It's a cyclocross gravel bike. And then we've got the fat tire bike. I mean, you know, I just bought the gravel bike last August. I bought the fat tire bike, in, I think in October or something like that. And I already want a full suspension mountain bike because I'm not a road, I'm not a road guy. I'm not a road guy. Cause I'm, I'm, I got hit by a truck on the road. I don't really need that much. I, I've not seen any pickup trucks on the trail. So I'm kind of that way, but I'm obsessed with that. I, it's probably a better obsession than I, what I was doing, but I still have to take a look at myself a little bit. Well, what I like about cycling is that it's uh, I have plenty of time to talk to myself and yeah. well, the advice is not good. It's yeah. free. So yeah. I like the free content. Yeah. yeah. And I got yeah. plenty of time. So well, it's, it's a, a good, good way, way to be alone too. It's yeah. a good, like, like I know I, there's tons of people that are like, Oh yeah, we should go riding. I'm like, are you kidding? I ride alone because that's, that's because I can ride alone. You know, it's that's, like, I can be alone. It's sort of the thing. I, I like to live in my head. That that's where I am also. Alan, I can't thank you enough. I think obviously the issue with addiction in, in medicine and dentistry, it's, it's pervasive. I mean, you yeah. talked about the anesthesiologist. I did a GPR um, at Mount Sinai Hospital. I saw it firsthand. I saw people who had access 
um, taking advantage of that access. Mm -hmm. I've had patients in that realm and I've known dentists that have had these struggles and I've borderline on the, I borderline on the struggles for sure. Sure. Um, What's funny is the access is an interesting thing because honestly, I mean, the suggestion, the statistics, depending on where you're looking, probably 20% of people are going to have a problem with problem drug and alcohol use in their life. 20% of people, so that's a huge number, except it's mm-hmm. not really, when you think about it, you're like, yeah, that's probably about right. But I suspect that in medical fields, particularly dentistry and in other medical fields, that number is probably higher in mostly because in dentistry, particularly because a lot of us work alone. So we yep. have, we're isolated from other colleagues and we have access. I hope that I, I haven't tried, but I hope access is a little harder than it was for me when I was using, I could just buy, I just go online and, and buy it, you know, as a matter of but I hope that it's a little bit harder, but, but also the isolation is, is on some level part of the problem. And yeah, there's a ton of dentists that struggle with this. And a lot of them haven't come out of it as nicely as me on some level. A lot of them don't think it's as much of a problem as it probably is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just, for someone who's, who is worried about it, first off, my email is simple, but not easy at gmail.com. And I, I, I'm always confidential about that stuff, but if you have any questions, but also there's a lot of resources. Most states have, have a, a, a confidential part of their their state dental association that has a committee that can help you with this stuff. And they're the right people to go to because they don't have, they don't discipline. They only are there to help. Like in other yeah. words, it's better to get in touch with them than to be reported to your board. Although if you get reported to the board, it's very likely they're going to refer you to them anyhow. Yeah. No dental board out there wants an addicted dentist to go to prison. They want them to get treatment. That's, mm-hmm. that is just, I will say in 2022, that's a good thing. That's what's yep. really happening. But the other thing is, is like a willingness to, to look at yourself is what it takes on some level. Well, thank you. It's been fascinating. I've listened to you talk about this on other podcasts and I just had some other questions. Yeah, and I for wanted sure. to, uh, for those who are out there, like I said in the beginning, it, you may not be, it may not be you, but it's probably someone you know or someone mm-hmm. that you love. And I think that's what's so, I, I think what's really interesting about your story is how your team gathered around and yeah, how you had the yeah. support. Cause I can't imagine you can do this without that kind of support. I yeah. Don't, yeah. It takes a lot. Right. Every day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In in building, not only are they supporting you, but it's at a level of accountability. Like it's not just rah, rah. It's also, you know what, on some level it's, it's carrot and stick on some level. If, if you know mm-hmm. that, you know, you can't be a dentist and be a drug addict. You're not, you're not allowed, <laughs> you no, know, <laughs> it's, you're putting your patients at risk. So you're, you're really not allowed to. And so on some level there is, there is that, I mean, you, you can, you can be a, a, you know, an Instagram influencer and be a crazy alcoholic. Go nuts. I don't recommend it, but you can, but as a dentist, a licensed health professional, you're not allowed to do that. No. And, and so on some level it requires accountability. I think that's a really important thing. Thanks so much for sharing. I've known you for a long time and I've, I've wanted to talk about this for a long time. I sure, remember yeah. you and I, when we first met, we went to the Bulls game. It was through a Cosmonaut. That was thing. great. Yeah, it was awesome. And I think I had offered to get you a beer and you said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sober or I'm, I'm an, I can't, I'm recovering. I think is what you yeah, said. I may have. And I didn't know how to respond quite honestly. I was sort yeah, of like, yeah. oh, huh. And I had to sort of think about that uh, because like you said, I mean, you know, alcohol consumption is just pervasive in our culture, right? Yeah. In any dental meeting or wherever you go. I, I thought a lot about that and I've, I've heard you talk about it on other podcasts and stuff. And you so- know what's funny? Uh, that is a conversation that a lot of new, newer people have. The struggle is being honest about it with people that in a situation where other people are drinking, that is like very real. Like Mm -hmm. it's never really been a problem for me. I can only think of one time in my life where it was, it was anything and it really wasn't, but there's a lot of people that don't want to, they feel like they're being everyone else's buzzkill or whatever. 
they don't want to be the thing that keeps the party from going. And, and I mean, honestly, my choice is to not hang around the party, uh, but sure. on some level, but, but I, that's important. It's, it's, it's like, there's a lot of peer pressure that goes along with that. And, and, and even though we're, you know, uh, developed professionals, we still, we're still human beings that have, you know, we want to be part of the crowd. So it's totally real. Yeah. And inevitably in any social, not any, but you can try and guide your social situation, but there's going to be times when you're going to be in a situation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, thanks for being so vulnerable and so open and, uh, you know, honest about your, your experience. Yeah. I I don't doubt there's going to be many people that get a lot out of that. So I hope so. That's cool. Thanks so much. All right. Well, listen, dental online trainers, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with uh, Alan and myself and look forward to seeing you at our future Sharecast. And you should check out Alan's projects. Um, I I guess I have to ask one question. So with Dental Hacks podcast, that's now that's now an extinct. uh, Well, it's it's funny. It's extinct, but it's all the dental at dentalhacks.com. You can get to all the old episodes. So they're all still out. And, And actually, you can get to them on the if you have if you have your phone set up to get the very dental podcast, all the old episodes are still there. You can get to them or you can go to the very dental, very dental podcast.com. The easiest way, of course, if you like to, because we're mostly audio, the easiest way is just go on your phone, go to the podcast app. If you're an iPhone person, just search dental and we'll come up. You know, it's one of those things. So, well, if you, uh, if you like podcasts, like I do, then check out the uh, very dental podcast and Alan and look, uh, I think it's, is it February every year that you guys are doing the voices of dentistry? It's, out it's January. It's, we've tried to make it. It seems like it's the week or two, but the weekend or two before the Super Bowl most years. So that's okay. kind of what we do. Yeah. I, I have to tell you, I know the. I'll get you the dates. I know them. I just can't remember them offhand. It's already set up for next year. So it's same, right. same time. Mid Scottsdale. Yep. Yep. All right. So go somewhere warm. If you're in the Midwest, like us, yeah, go somewhere exactly. warm from January. Exactly which is a blessing. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, listen, uh, Dental Online Trainers, thanks for hanging out and chatting or listening to our chit chat with uh, Dr. Alan Mead. I'm Dennis Hartley, yours for better dentistry and uh, yours for better mental health, I think, which is uh, maybe even more important. Well, it's definitely more important. So until next time, thanks for listening. And we look forward to seeing you at our future podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you. Dental Online Trainers. Many of us, if not most of us, are exposed to friends, family, or even coworkers that are struggling with some sort of addiction. Unfortunately for some, it's just merely a look in the mirror. Our guest, Alan Mead, shares that with some love and compassion, there is a way out and a path to sobriety. There are a number of support agencies that are at our fingertips. Just Google to find an organization near you if you or someone you care about is suffering with addiction. And listen, if you enjoy this sharecast, And if there's someone that you know that might be needing to hear this message, please share it with them. Also, don't forget that DOT has so many other great learning opportunities from our monthly webinars, where we engage real time with our viewers as we bring in leaders throughout the dental industry, and our monthly coffee and donut study club mentoring sessions. We have our live virtual workshops. In fact, we have our six tooth direct resin course coming up in June. And we have our blogs and, of course, our endless selection of hands-on pre-recorded technique courses to improve your dentistry. So check us out at dothandson.com. And thanks for joining us. As always, yours for better dentistry. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb. Thanks so much for listening to the ShareCast. If you are not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe to our ShareCast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're loving the ShareCast, share it with your colleagues. And please rate it and leave us a review. Also, if you want access to fantastic clinical, managerial, and leadership tips to help you in your practice of dentistry, check us out at dothandson.com or find me on Instagram at HartleyDDS. This episode was created with special help from Claire O'Neill. It was edited by Ashley Dixon Ellison. 
and with original music by Chris Peterson. Again, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb, yours for better dentistry.